so we are outside, literally next door to the apartment where there's a doctor practice that is offering rapid tests for 50 euros without a long line and by appointment, which is a rare thing these days going into the holidays as people are rushing to get tested before they go see family or friends. There's just been so many horror stories all of these months about the confusion and chaos and uncertainty about getting tested, where to go, how to get it, who's eligible for one, who's not. We're counting ourselves quite lucky that we can literally go down the steps, go next door, and we should have a reasonably accurate result within about 10 to 20 minutes. And we're doing that because we're having a couple people over for Christmas and we want to take every reasonable precaution necessary that we're not posing a risk to ourselves or others. Obviously nothing is perfect, no test is perfect. Um, only really sitting alone, isolated at home, doing absolutely nothing is the only sure way to not get or spread coronavirus, but of course, life is much more than an epidemiological equation. There are many other aspects to consider, and the rapid test before Christmas seems like a most reasonable uh, course of action to still have some amount of Christmas joy this year. This is going to be my first test uh, after all of these months of any kind, and hopefully it's going to reflect the way I feel, which is fine. Hello. Hello. I asked the doctor who was doing the tests what he's been seeing. He said in his small practice, he gets about four to five positive tests a day, 99 since October, both PCR tests, which are far more reliable and are basically reserved for people who have symptoms and are feeling sick, and the rapid test, which is more open to anyone who's asking for one, as was our situation. Not the most pleasant experience, but I did get the option of having the swab up my nose or in the throat. I chose the latter. And about 15 minutes later, a nurse popped her head out the door with some paperwork in her hand. So, am I what? What am I? What is this telling me? Ah, here it is. Das Ergebnis ist negativ. Yay! This is my souvenir. My souvenir from this pandemic period that I am, as far as I can tell, negative. Which, when you combine with all the other restrictions on everyday life, I think should be more or less reasonably assured that I am actually negative. We have so much geschafft, we schaffen das. And I have great respect for the country. My father is German, right? Was German. Ich freue mich sehr, heute hier in Deutschland zu sein. The fact that Germany is doing better so far makes one humble, not overconfident. Es ist ernst. Nehmen Sie es auch ernst. Hello and welcome to Neuschland. I'm William Bluecroft. And Kate Brady is off this time around. There's plenty keeping a full-time correspondent busy these days, so sometimes the podcast has to wait. 
much as we wish it didn't have to. But fear not, you don't have to suffer with just me this entire episode. I've got two great guests joining me to help sift through everything that's going on. Before we get to them, let's catch up on where we are. As we're recording, it's just a few days until a Christmas like no other. I can only describe people's Christmas planning this year, like playing whack-a-mole with a virus and the ever-changing rules trying to contain it. Germany was going to loosen up its already fairly loose lockdown for the Christmas and New Year's period, but as cases stayed consistently high for weeks and daily deaths kept breaking records, Chancellor Angela Merkel finally got what she has always wanted, tougher measures. It tut mir wirklich im Herzen leid. Aber wenn wir dafür den Preis zahlen, dass wir Todeszahlen von Tag am Tag 590 Menschen haben, dann ist das nicht akzeptabel aus meiner Sicht und deshalb müssen wir das. Remember, before going into this foreseeable second wave, Germany had kept deaths to under 10,000 and was roundly applauded for its good work. At last count, more than 26,000 people have died here. Less than many other countries have suffered, but still not a great look. That's more deaths this time around than in the springtime. Hospitals around the country are also being pushed closer to their limits. And this comes amid an ongoing nursing shortage. Germany actually has more ICU beds than it can operate because it lacks medical personnel. Basically, the social contact rules are now no more than five people from two households. Things get a bit murkier for the holiday, that is from the 24th to 26th. Germany-wide, your household can gather indoors with up to four other people, but there's no saying how many people your own household can have, and kids under 14 don't count. Of course, the restrictions are really up to the states, and each one has put their own slight twist on things. Although it's impossible to enforce, German authorities would really like you keeping to meeting only what they call closest family for Christmas. And this has sparked some interesting debate about what family even means in almost 2021. What about close friends who consider themselves family? What about partners who don't live together? What about single people without family nearby who have no place to go? And on and on, so many combinations of social connections that define people's lives, and these rules fail to adequately address. It seems, at least, what authorities are really trying to say is, we can keep making up rules, but really it's up to you. Just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. The wichtigste Schlüssel, den wir haben, das sind nicht die Verbote und Schließungen und Kontrollen, die müssen an vielen Stellen sein. Aber der wichtigste Schlüssel zur erfolgreichen Bekämpfung des Virus bei uns ist das verantwortliche Verhalten jedes Einzelnen und die Bereitschaft zum Mitmachen. Und wir wissen. That tension between can and should became very real earlier this week at arrival terminals at Germany's airports. Germany joined other EU member states in announcing a hasty travel ban with the United Kingdom after it became one of a few countries to report a new strain of COVID-19. A lot still isn't known about it, but initial research suggests the mutation could be more infectious, but just as susceptible to the vaccines getting rolled out around the world to confront it. Travelers from the UK, many of them having just left Germany days earlier, taking the risk to head home for Christmas, rushed to catch the last flights back to Germany. When they landed, they were met by border police not really knowing how to handle them. Reports came in that non-Germans were separated from Germans, people with residence permits were separated from other travelers, those with negative test results separated from those without a test to show. Some passengers were allowed to go home, others were forced to sleep in the airport before getting tested the next morning. 
German media are now reporting that some of those arrivals have since tested positive for the virus, and it's unclear what to do with them and those they may have exposed along the way. The UK is now largely cut off from the EU until at least the new year. A bit on the nose given that it's already legally cut off come December 31st without a deal to preserve free trade and movement. Yes folks, Brexit is still happening. There might literally be a last minute breakthrough by then, but right now negotiations are about as stuck as people trying to get back into Germany. At least the EU has finally approved a vaccine, a few weeks after the UK, the US, Canada, and many other countries did for their populations. Health officials in Germany say that means the first vaccinations can still take place zwischen den Jahren, literally between the years, what Germans call the time between Christmas and New Year's. All the usual suspects will get the first jabs. So that's a bit of good news, but otherwise, I'm not gonna lie, things are looking pretty grim as we close out a year I think most people wouldn't mind getting a do-over for. So, why not grab yourself a cup of cocoa, maybe add a schuss or two of whiskey, you've certainly earned it, as I welcome this episode's guests. Because Germany's big issues are the EU's to share, we'll hear from two people who know both extremely well. From Vienna, it's Emily Schulteis, a freelance journalist and fellow with the Institute of Current World Affairs. She writes mostly about European politics and the far right. And the discerning Neuschland listener will remember her from our very first episode. And speaking with us from Warsaw, Toby Brunt is a communications specialist there and very much a European at heart, having lived and worked around the EU, including Germany and Spain. Welcome both of you to Neuschland. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Pleasure. So we've just been through the litany of what's going on here in Germany, the rules, the new rules, the contradictory rules, all of the confusion that has kind of settled in over the Christmas period in Germany. Why don't you guys give me a little perspective of how things are looking where you are? Um, we're kind of all going through similar coronavirus confusion right now. Emily, maybe turning to you first in Vienna. We've basically swapped places with with Germany in terms of what kind of restrictions have been in place. Austria had a very hard lockdown for several weeks because the numbers here were comparatively much higher than in Germany. Uh, at the moment, we've now had, uh, what, two weeks now of stores being open again, schools being open again. But because the numbers were kind of creeping back up, or at the very least not dropping the way that the government wanted, uh, the day after Christmas, uh, we'll, we'll start another hard lockdown. Like Germany, we have this assumption that the virus will wait for Christmas um, and wait for the new rules to kind of be put back into, put back into force. Yeah, it's, you know, the, the complicated thing in Germany... There was obviously a lot of coverage of of the rules of how many adults you could have, of how many households, things like that. In Austria, it's actually at the moment really unclear what you're supposed to be doing, uh, because you know you you can be with up to I think up to five people indoors, but it's not really totally clear to me, even having looked into this a bit, what they now expect of people on Christmas. I think they're hoping that people are going to reduce their gatherings as much as they can, or at least reduce them somewhat. I know we, for example, are, are doing a much, much smaller 
uh, Christmas than, than we did last year. My boyfriend and I are meeting his brother and sister-in-law who live right down the street. So it's, it's just going to be a small two household, uh, Christmas. We're all getting rapid tests beforehand. We're literally walking on our way there to get a test. And it turns out at least the city of Vienna, and I imagine potentially elsewhere in Austria as well, is offering free rapid tests to anyone who wants to get them right around the holidays. So there are things that they're doing to, you know, obviously that doesn't remove the the risk, but it at least kind of minimizes it to whatever extent possible. It's like it's like a new Christmas tradition, you know, two portraits <laughs> in a pear tree and a rapid test. But at least you don't have to wait so long. It's not, you know, waiting for Santa to fly all around. Or sorry, we're in Austria, so it's the Christkind, not Santa. Um, you don't have to wait for for the Christkind to show up. It's apparently 10 minutes. So I think I can I can wait 10 minutes for what I hope will be a nice stocking stuffer and not a nodding, naughty stocking stuffer. It's, it's interesting that you mention about how Austria and Germany are, are in a way crossing paths, that Austria was in this harder lockdown, then is easing up. Germany was in an easier lockdown, then tightening things up. You know, all the many jokes and stereotypes aside of Germany and Austria and how similar they are, and especially, I, th I think, especially outside of Europe, people often conflate the two countries. There are still a lot of cultural similarities between Germany and Austria. What explains or accounts for the fact that these two countries went very different ways in this second wave? It's a little bit hard to overstate the importance of tourism and especially of ski season in Austria. You know, I think every country has something that can be a little bit irrational about when it comes to public policy. In the US, it's guns, among other things. In Germany, it's, you know, speed limits on the Autobahn. And in Austria, I, I think it's ski season. And so there really was this attempt, even though the numbers were comparatively already a bit higher earlier in the fall, uh, there was a reluctance to go into a hard lockdown or even into a you know so-called so lockdown light because they wanted to try and ski save ski season, because they wanted to try and keep tourism going. And it really backfired. I think there's, you know, it's so clear from what we've seen across the globe so far this year that sometimes a matter of a week or two can make a huge difference in terms of just how far out of control the numbers can get. And, you know, if Austria had done what it did maybe two or three weeks earlier, it, rather than starting at the same time Germany did, maybe the numbers wouldn't have gotten so high. But it's, it's sort of this weird situation where, you know, you've had a hard lockdown, the numbers have come, come very significantly back down, but they've come down from an extremely high level and they're now almost where Germany is, uh, where, you know, German policymakers are obviously very concerned about where Germany's numbers are. The fact that Germany was doing so well, it, it gave German politicians the ability, or at least the sense of a little bit of more Spielraum, as they say in German, a little more flexibility to, you know, not go so hard, whereas Austria had that experience of such high cases, as did many other countries around Europe. At one point, Austria had one of the worst um, seven-day rates per capita in in all of europe and that's you know then then you have to take drastic action and that's what they did and of course germany's idea of a hard lockdown is much different from then say a french idea of a hard lockdown <laughs> where in germany we can still meet with people and we can still get food to go out of restaurants uh, and in ma many other parts of europe do not have those kinds of luxuries let's turn over we go from one neighboring country of germany austria to another neighboring country 
of Germany, that being Poland. Toby, I feel so close to you. I mean, I, I often describe or, or joke with people that Berlin is a Western city of Poland because uh, we're mm -hmm. so close to the border. I feel so close to Poland, yet so far away. What's What's the picture over there? The government have made some strange decisions recently regarding uh, restrictions of movement. Cases have been steadily rising since October. Uh, and then in December, after uh, quite a few restrictions were introduced um, in late October, it seemed to have an effect, or at least on paper, it seemed to have an effect as cases slowly began to come down around mid-December. But at the same time, the government, which had previously stated that ski season would be open, for example, now is saying that after uh, Christmas, the ski slopes will be closed, hotels will be closed, uh, malls will be closed, and children under 16 will also not be, able, not be able to go out of the house without a parent between 8 and 4 p.m. So there, there are various uh, signals um, coming from the government, and they've, and they've led to a little bit of confusion. But in general, we've been, we've been following a similar kind of path as, as most, most European countries. One thing that has stood out is uh, consistently is uh, mask wearing, uh, we've been required to wear masks in all public spaces. Uh, it's a kind of prerequisite um, to to pretty much going anywhere outside of your house now. Uh, when you've got a two-year-old, it's pretty hard to find <laughs> find somewhere to go out of the house. One of the biggest or the most amount of support that the Polish government gets is its emphasis on family and its emphasis on child support. Have they been viewed as doing a good job supporting families and children uh, through this pandemic? Well, uh, schools been in virtual mode since uh, October 24th, since the, the new wave of measures were introduced. Uh, but that did not include um, nursery schools and preschools. And that, that came at the behest of uh, working parents, I think mainly from, from, from pressure from, from them to not close down. But I'm also hearing uh, rumors that it was, uh, you know, it was also an economic decision because uh, parents with children at home uh, will have to go on to maternity or some kind of leave uh, in which the, the government would have to pay from uh, from their welfare budget. But after eight months of of, uh, of various measures, that the the coffers have kind of dried up. But children up to four um, are still going to 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 nursery or to preschool. You know, in the springtime, Poland was really firm about border closures with Germany. You know, Germany was ready to have, you know, cross-border traffic again when numbers started to decline. And Poland was really, for a while, digging its feet in the ground and wanted to be very secure about who was coming out of its country. Have you seen any of that come up again in these last several weeks, especially when Germany has kind of dropped the ball uh, you know, in the springtime, did a pretty good job handling the pandemic. This time around, very much not not the case. As a neighbor of Germany, how's Poland kind of been looking to Germany um, as this is all unfolded? Well, I think the uh, the general attitude of the Polish government is very uh, standing their ground and trying to appear to be self sufficient, and it, and that came quite clearly to me when uh, there was uh, from Germany assistance in terms of med medical supplies and ventilators um, and the. The Polish government made a very public statement declining any offer of assistance, uh, saying that we're clearly uh, self-sufficient. But then I heard reports at the same time that there were hospitals close to the German border in Poland that were actually accepting supplies. You know, Angela Merkel spoke again to Bundes the Bundestag, the German parliament, talking about this impasse going on with the coronavirus relief funding and the, the debt sharing agreement that was meted out over the summer between European Union member states. 
And, you know, the way it was framed here in Germany largely was, you know, Angela Merkel, the head, you know, the head of Germany. And Germany, of course, is uh, currently leading the, the EU Council presidency until the end of until the end of this year. So about a week left. Uh, they're, you know, they're going to go to Brussels. They, they have this plan, this compromise plan, and everything's going to work out. And kind of in the 11th hour, it did. And the, you know, the EU budget passed and they found a way to smooth things over with Poland and Hungary on there, their problems with the rule of, the, you know, the money being tied to rule of law. How are things viewed uh, where you are, Toby? I know that um, the decision to accept the, um, the rule of law mechanism here in Poland was, was met with a conflict in, in the current government, um, especially between the um, justice minister, um, Jobro, uh, who, who is the, he was the leader of the, one of the coalition parties, United Poland, um, who make up the, the ruling coalition, along with the PIS, the decision to accept the mechanism. That only heightened tensions, that decision. And there was, there was talk about sovereignty. There was talk about uh, European colonialism and this, all these kind of messages keep getting washed washed through the messaging from the government. The Polish government have uh, a very good at internal politics, but when it comes to foreign affairs, they're they're less experienced. And Orban seems to have more experience in that in that realm. So, uh, Orban actually visited Warsaw uh, just after the decision, just after Merkel's changing of the of the wording of the of the mechanism to make it. Uh, acceptable to to Poland and Hungary, and uh, on that visit, Orban um, appeared on a on a private TV channel in in a rare interview, in which he talked about sovereignty and uh, Hungary and Poland will not accept this. But then the same day, um, the Polish government came forward and accepted the mechanism, and there there was rumours that Orban's kind of uh, influence on the Polish government was in play here, and that he had he had more influence in terms of their foreign policy. So there seems to be an inter- interdependency in terms of giving each other advice and uh, in terms of how they approach the EU and how they deal with the EU. We have Germany kind of wrapping up its council presidency. There was a, this was, of course, made a big deal out of here in Germany. I think it's more of a, maybe more media hype, more something that journalists and people inside the bubble talk about than really has any kind of practical impact on the future of the EU and stability across the bloc. And of course, certainly, you know, for how, you know, things are going here in Germany. But nonetheless, it had its its six months of in, in the limelight. It's wrapping that up, going to hand it over to Portugal. Bring us from the end of this year, looking into the new year in the context of this family feud, if you want to call, if you want to call that with between, you know, Poland and Hungary on one side and you have Germany, France, maybe on the other. What we're seeing right now is obviously not the first time that this issue has, has arisen on the EU level, nor is it the first time that uh, that EU leaders have sort of struggled to figure out how exactly you're supposed to uh, enforce things like the rule of law for member states. And and so I don't think that issue is going away. Um, I think that this is something that, you know, Germany, as you say, is sort of a, a de facto um, most powerful country in, in Europe. You know, that's something that, that they are always going to struggle with particularly when we talk about when we talk about Hungary there are economic concerns at play as well the german car industry depends very heavily on hungary and so you know you also see you see politically Angela Merkel's party the christian democrats struggling with how to deal with with fides uh, with the orban party that is part of their group on the european level because in certain ways they need them, you see the economic concerns, and all of this is wrapped up in in some of these bigger questions that that really get to the heart of what the values of the European Union are and who gets to decide them. Toby, if there's one thing that I, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, if there's one thing though that Poland 
can maybe you know run to the corner of the EU on it is um, anything that has to do with Russia, especially uh, this Nord Stream two gas line project, which began, uh, which restarted, I should say, restarted operations uh, just this month, not long ago, uh, despite threats of sanctions from the U.S. government. Uh, this is something that Germany mostly wants to push ahead with, although it's very controversial here as well. And uh, many, many people within the EU, especially uh, in the eastern part of Europe, where Russia really is very much uh, a tangible adversary, threat, challenge, whatever word you want to use, uh, very much wanting to see this stopped. What kind of what do you see is in store for for the new, in the new year uh, on this issue? I think uh, it's quite clear that in Poland the, they're, they're opposed to the uh, the Polish government is opposed to the Nord Stream uh, two pipeline uh, because uh, because of the energy dependency, um, um, seeing un- unnecessary influence on Germany from Russia's side, um, and a lot of that has also been reinforced by um, uh, Poland's relationship with uh, with America, especially under President Trump. Along with the EU, they've been running to the to the US for for political support when it comes to Russian issues. I think it's also related to the fact that the pipeline is kind of they see it as, it, as in their backyard. Poland's trying to currently increase its influence in the Baltic, its access to the Baltic. They're building a new canal through this lagoon in order to bypass Russian waters and allow um, greater shipping to access the Baltic. So there are a few issues around the Baltic that I think the, the bring Poland into conflict with Russia, and that will continue to to play out this year, I think. Um, I'm not sure how much of it will depend on the position that, that Biden takes on the the incoming uh, president will, will take on the on the Russian issue. They also have a big, a big, cha- big challenge there to build a new relationship with the, the incoming president as they cozied up so much to, to Trump. As long as the Nord Stream project goes ahead, I think that it will continue to be a point of, of tension between uh, Poland and Germany because Poland will continue to stand against it. Uh, there's also uh, the Polish government's strategy of uh, what they call re- repolonizing Polish media, and that has brought them into conflict with um, uh, Germany uh, this year. Uh, something like 200 local media outlets were purchased by um, the state oil refiner or oil company, uh, who were previously owned by, by a German media company. There was also the presidential elections this year in which um, German-owned media outlets in Poland were, were accused of bias and accused of being um, on the side of the opposition in the election. And Emily, Austria, Germany. You know, Austria, I find such an interesting country because it's it's a small country, small population, and yet it does have, in some sense, uh, outsized influence, at least on the European scale. It's a very wealthy country. Um, it's strategically well-located, geographically speaking. What do you see going forward in the new year between Germany and Austria. I think when you look at Angela Merkel, uh, Chancellor of Germany, and you look at Sebastian Kurz, Chancellor of Austria, you, these are both leaders from the center-right conservative, you know, Christian Democrat conservative parties in their countries, and yet they have really starkly different views uh, on on the EU, on migration, and and Kurz has sort of he's sort of managed to punch above his weight at at the EU level, whether, you know, this summer talking about coronavirus recovery discussions, he was part of the so-called frugal four countries that pushed back against, uh, you know, some of the, the levels of spending and the levels of debt that were being discussed. He's also someone who has very much, uh, and I think consciously so, made a name for himself as tougher on migration, more right wing on these issues than then Merkel is, and then some of the other uh, leaders, particularly in Western Europe, are. And so, you know, some of this is that he's 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 a very savvy marketer. Um, at least when it comes to marketing himself, he he always has been. I think you don't become chancellor of a country 
when you're 31 years old, which, you know, gosh, what have I done with my life at this point um, in comparison? And, and therefore gives Austria, you know, not only maybe a, a disproportionately influential role given its size as a country, but also presents it very much as the foil to to Angela Merkel's vision of of conservative politics in Europe. I won't let you go. It's been this has been a hell of a year for everyone. Um, <laughs> if you can give me a word or a phrase or a feeling, what are you guys kind of looking forward to or thinking about as we go from the end of 2020, whatever this year was, uh, into 2021? Emily, you first. I mean, look, so during the first wave, the things that I missed most and wanted most were to sit on a train without worrying about getting infected without wearing a mask and to go to a beer garden with friends. We were lucky enough to be able to do some of that this summer. Obviously, a lot of it is very difficult now, but my hope is that some point in 2021 that I can again do those things without being, you know, conscious or constantly concerned about catching COVID. I'm looking forward to uh, being able to go to um, playground <laughs> normally and uh, not be afraid that uh, my kid is going to grow up in a in a pandemic fueled uh, dystopia. <laughs> I think that's a good place to end it. All right, Toby Brunt in Warsaw, Emily Schulteis in Vienna. Thank you both very much for joining us on this year-end wrap of Neuschland. Have a very merry lockdown, limited household Christmas. <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> A, a very merry lockdown to you as well, sir. Thank you. And I hope I hope we'll all be seeing each other in person real soon. Thanks very much. Been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Neuschland and for the year. We'll be back in the new year with new episodes as much as our crazy schedules allow. This is our 13th episode. And while we wish we could have done more, Kate and I are thrilled to have gotten this podcast off the ground and want to thank all of our listeners for their ears and their support. Give us a virtual Christmas gift if you like by sharing our episodes, subscribing to us on your favorite podcast platform, or leaving us a review. And speaking of Christmas, this one is really going to suck for a lot of people. But let's keep in mind why. Because for hundreds of thousands of families, it's the virus itself, not those pesky rules, that's leaving a seat empty at the table. So on that note, Merry Christmas and Mach's gut.